Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Brintmore. My guest this week is tree specialist Julian Height. We talk about, you guessed it, trees of all shapes, sizes, nationalities and species. We talk about activism. We talk about protecting ancient forests. Uh, we talk about punk rock. We talk about the three books that he's written, Britain's Tree Story. We talk about this, the journey he went on to write World Tree Story, where he, he went to 39 countries to research this book. Uh, and we talk about mythology surrounding um, trees in certain cultures on his travels and all kinds of different things. Really, really quite an incredible story there. And then we talk about his latest book called Britain's Ancient Forests. Uh, he also gives us a little tease that there may be another book in the works, so you have to stick around and listen all the way to the end, really, for that one. Uh, I had a really great chat with Julian. I really liked his energy. He really knows his stuff. I'm really grateful for the time that he spent chatting to me. I really learned a lot. I think you guys will really learn a lot. Um, it's so many interesting facts within this podcast, and and you could just tell listening to him that he really, truly loves this. And that, for me, is when a podcast is is at its best, is when you're speaking to someone who really wants to be here, really loves talking about what they're talking about, and, and you can just vibe off the energy. And I think you guys will as well listening to this. I hope you do, because the enthusiasm is infectious. And I'm going to stop waffling on now, and we're just going to get straight to it. Here it is, Julian Height on The Giant Pod. Enjoy. good chat i think we're gonna have i really enjoyed jake obviously jake's been on the pod before jake height if you haven't heard that pod and you're listening to this one definitely make sure you listen to jake's story um jake's life story up to now um my oldest son after this one yes your oldest son tell me what was your um have you heard jake's podcast did you listen to it yeah yeah was that the first time you'd heard the moroccan mafia story or were you well aware of that no i was aware of the moroccan mafia story yeah at the time he sort of told us from morocco Mm. um but he withheld some information (laughs) oh i'm sure he bloody (laughs) probably just as well but you know it was a possible you know life and death situation and he lived to tell the tale and he's quite pleased because he managed to write a song about it so there you go yeah he's <laughs> so an artist he is an artist he's definitely an artist yeah and and do you think he, he he must get that off of you right because you've been such an avid sort of punk rock fan and i guess you've you know i i, I don't want to call you a punk rock musician just in case you do other things, you know what I mean? Because I feel like sometimes saying that someone's a punk rock musician is quite limiting, really. I mean, you could be a, a phenomenal jazz guitarist, and I, you know, and I don't know. Uh, well, I'm not actually, but um, <laughs> but no, I get your point. And actually, uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up with punk. That was my era, you know. So I feel really lucky to have to have grown up at that time because it was it was really exciting, and it said to me. It basically said, do your own thing, you know, do it yourself as well. So it's okay if you only know three chords, just go and have a go, you know. So it's all about self-expression, doing your own thing and doing it yourself, you know. So I I think that's – and I've kept that. So musically I've probably – you know, it's been a long time now, but I've I've tried different things and I think variety, you know, staying in the same 
the same vein, if you like, forever isn't what punk was about either. It's about trying to be different, isn't it? So, yeah. So, yeah, so different journeys through music, different aspects of music. I mean, I love stuff from, I mean, the Stranglers were really my, the, the band that really hit me. And at the time, people were saying, well, they're not punk, you know. Right. But they were definitely part of it. It was, you know, it, it was that scene. And, I think they're punk. I mean, every, yeah. every punk rocker that I know worth their salt will name drop the Stranglers at some point. Um, our bass player in Sick Ones absolutely adores the Stranglers because of their... Because of the bass. I mean, bass. every bass player's got to love J.J. Bennell. You know, he was he made it a lead instrument, really, you know. Right. Because he didn't want to sit at the back being, you know, boom, boom, boom. He wanted to... Yeah, fading into the, the background. Because generally bassists are very much the introverted member of the band that will, you know, stand at the back. And they're not normally the most animated. I'm not saying that all bassists are sort of boring, but I've seen more <laughs> bassists than not be the guy that's chilling at the back and holding it down. Sure. And there's something about the um, the temperament of most bass players that I think is probably why they're drawn to that instrument, because you've got to be that steady rock, haven't you? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Steady Eddie. Yeah. at times and and really keep holding you know keep the glue together because us drummers are you know we're we're racked with nervous energy uh, <laughs> and sort of you know we you know we are Keith Moon inside and he just happens to be Keith Moon in and outside but you know we're that and and although it's our job to keep the time I tell you what when I've got George strumming along next to me in sick ones uh, he, he really does help me sit in that pocket a bit more and that so sure. that you know you shouldn't uh you can never underestimate the power of a good bass player i think no absolutely not it drives it doesn't it with the drum with the drums but yeah definitely and so uh, that so that had a big influence i mean that bass from the stranglers did as well yeah. but as far as jake goes i mean he he grew up in a musical household i suppose so his dad was always recording and playing gigs and writing songs so he just grew up with that and it was totally natural for him to do it so he's been he's probably been writing prolifically since he was 30 10 12 something like that you know so so he has an output man yeah he does he's he is quite prolific but um i mean i didn't grow up in a musical household so it, it was the punk thing that made me do it it was my rebellious thing to do i suppose you know yeah. but i did have a theatrical background my mum and dad were met in the theatre and my mum was a poet she wrote poetry so I suppose that's come through me and again to Jake you know yeah you never know how it's going to come how it's going to work out but it it certainly has we're definitely a creative family not particularly academic (laughs) yeah well I don't know you mean you've written three books here on trees which we will we we will get on to but I didn't particularly grow up in a I would say a creative or musical household so yeah punk for me and heavy music for me was that that way in. Like I think about my family, and I don't know anyone that plays an instrument, or anyone that does any real art, or yeah. write, or writes, even writes for the pleasure of writing. You know anything? Um, so I had to sort of educate myself. I think, and I think punk is that ultimate way in. There's that that famous piece of paper that was up on the board at CBGBs, which was like you know, someone had written out, drawn out three chords, uh, sorry, four chords, and said, here are four chords, now go and start a band. Yeah. And there was, you know, there was something about, there's something about the accessibility of punk rock. Absolutely. I think you you hit the nail on the head there with self-education. Yeah. 
you know, it's almost had self-education has almost had a, a bad press, if you like, you know, in any in any line of work or, you know, if you haven't got the degree or you haven't come through the system to, to learn it, then quite often you haven't been accepted, you know. And I think maybe that's changing now because I haven't been trained. I mean, I was a, I trained as a graphic designer and that's how I've made my living most of my life. Music was just self-educated, self-taught. And uh, with the trees, it started as a passion, really. You know, it was just a hobby. And But 15 years later, I feel that having written three books with, a, you know, it's quite a lot of work in there. I feel that I've sort of, I feel that I can sit in an independent seat, if you like, f- from doing that. And I really like that, that term, self-educating. I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think what you've got is something that, I think what you're trying to get at there is there's there's three achievements here that no one can take away from you. Doesn't matter what you your CV says compared to someone else's. You have three books on a specialist subject that are published that have written, and no one can take that away from you. No one can say, "Oh, well, you're self-educated." Blah blah blah. There's no diminishing your achievement now because it's it's real and it's physical. You've manifested it. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's good. I mean, they can criticise it, and that's fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, everyone's an expert, aren't they? Well, that's a term I don't like. You see, and when when people write about me, and they quite often in the introduction they'll say "true expert," and I really don't like that because I don't consider myself an expert. And the actual term, I just think, if you call yourself an expert, it's you assuming you know everything about something, and you you know. Learning is a perpetual... You never get to the end, do you? Whatever you're in, music, you'll never learn it all. Yeah. It's, you know, so I prefer the word specialist. Yeah. Well, that's... Yeah, it sounds corny, but I always say that, you know, I'm a student of rock and roll and I will never... graduate <laughs> yeah that's you know good I mean? like it's and i don't want to either i'm a student of no. music and i will you know i will never graduate because i, and I don't want to because there's always something to learn yeah. and also there's a there's something humble about what you said because you're talking about the the greatness of mother nature and to call yourself an expert on something so vast and complex and beautiful almost seems a little crass doesn't it yeah i think that's right I think that's right. And we don't know. There's so much we don't know about nature and also so much we don't know about trees as well. You know, it's, it's definitely not an exact science. We're learning stuff all the time. I mean, fairly recently, there was a book that came out, The Hidden Life of Trees and uh, Secret Life of Trees, and which talks about how the roots connect, say, in a wood or a forest, for instance. And those roots are connected between trees by mycorrhizal fungi, which latches onto the roots to get to gain nutrients from them. But in the same time as doing that, it's also connecting their roots so they can exchange information and nutrients between themselves. So you could say the whole forest is one entity, you know, and that would be a that would have been a fairy tale 20 years ago. But now science backs it up, you know. So there have been studies made and they're saying, well, yeah, this does happen, you know. So it's it's incredible, really. I mean, it's, it's quite mind blowing when you think of it in terms like that, but makes perfect sense because... Why wouldn't they do that if it's a key for survival, you know, and, and adapt to be able to do that? So does this mean that, say, you know, you've got trees, say the trees in the middle are the ones, or, or no, sorry, the trees on the edges are possibly the ones that are getting the most sunlight because there's nothing to um, there's nothing to shield them from receiving that sunlight. And is that does that mean that the trees in the middle 
um, get a fairer shout, get a fairer chance? Is this just so that they they can sort of, you know, it's to their... I don't know, it's because there's no conscious thought in it, is there? It's a strange no. strange thing to discuss, like there's well, a plan. Well, they, they think that trees that need trees that need more, so say, for instance, the one in the middle that's not getting the light and all the nutrients, that's the one that takes the most, you know. So that's Bloody that's socialists. <laughs> but, about, but actually, things you mentioned that, you know, this trees in the middle and the ones on the edge, I mean, we've got this idea, we've, we've sort of all, everyone, I think, in the last hundred years or more has grown up with this idea of forest being this dense wood, you know, this dark place. The thinking now is that our, our wild wood, if you like, the earliest woodland when the, the last ice age retreated for a long, long time was open. So you would have had a lot of grazing animals naturally munching their way through, keeping the, the forest open. I mean, take an oak tree. I mean, the trees that I look at, I particularly search out the oldest trees so I travelled the world to do a world tree book, world tree story, and I wanted to record 100 trees, in, and it was across 40 countries, and it was just a magnificent uh, experience for me over five years or so. But they're always open. You know, they're, those big trees don't survive if they're crammed in a wood, you know. So, I mean, you can go to California with the big redwoods, and that, it's a different story there because things are different in different places. But it's coming back to the UK, our, our old oak woodlands, oaks don't like being crammed in. They want space. They want, they love the light. And that's where you find the big old trees. If they were crammed in a woods, they wouldn't live for a thousand years, you know. And it's so magnificent that they can last that long, that yeah, they have the potential, un, uh, you know, if they're undisturbed by man uh, or, or lightning or, or whatever else, uh, you know, can take a tree out, that they can they can stand for that long. Is there an evolutionary purpose for that, that they have such a long lifespan? Has that been figured out yet? It's more a case of, um, I think, you know, we always, we look at things in human lifespan terms. That's, of course we do, because that's what we are, humans. But uh, you think of human time, but um, I'd like to think of tree time, which is a whole different... Like that dog thing. years. Yeah, it's exactly like dog years. It's exactly it. So, right. I mean, if you think, just take an English oak, if it can live for a thousand years, they came over to this country from Europe when we were still joined to it physically before the, the water rose, 10 to 12,000 years ago. So if you're looking at that timescale, you, you're looking at 10 generations, it could be, back to the last ice age, you know, in tree time. They right. take their time, you see, they I mean, it's it's only decay and uh, um, possibly disease that gets them. I mean, some trees they actually regenerate themselves, so they could actually live forever. That you know, but they don't, of course. If if something doesn't get them, uh, so it, what what is the biggest threat other than mankind to a tree? So let's say a tree is in a sat in a forest, uh, and mankind never sees this forest never knows it's there, never sets foot in it. What is the biggest killer of trees and, and why? Is it, is it like a, fu is it fungal? Um, and, and what kind of, what does disease look like to trees? Is it rot? What, what, what's, the, um, what's the biggest danger to trees naturally that isn't us? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, I mean, there are tree disease. There's a lot of tree disease in this, say in Britain, for instance, there's you know, we've had the ash dieback, which came over from Europe and sort of decimated the ash trees in Scandinavia. And they're thinking it's going to do the same here now. It's everywhere. You can't stop it. So that is a, a pathogen that will 
kill the tree, if you like. But fungi itself is not necessarily bad. The trees need to have fungi to live. It's part of their existence. As I mentioned earlier with the root system, that's very much part of their a symbiotic relationship, you know. Dutch elm disease killed off all the elms in Britain. There are probably only a thousand elm trees in England now, you know, whereas they were once as common as the oak. So, but these were diseases coming in from other countries because of international trade and travel, you know, before they thought right. to check what was on a boat. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say this, like, you know, because trees aren't going on holiday. Exactly. <laughs> We're recording this. Unfortunately, we have to do this via the internet because we are, unfortunately, in the midst of a pandemic. And yeah. and so what you're describing, I guess, is the tree equivalent of a pandemic. Yeah, that's what it is. Trees don't get a passport and go on holiday and travel to other countries or cross into uh, the next town or visit the supermarket or, or go anywhere that can compromise them. Um, right. So how do these diseases spread? When you say a path, you know, is, is there anything that's sort of airborne or...? Well, the ash dieback is airborne, um, spores of a fungi, if you like, but Dutch elm disease came in with a beetle. So uh, the beetles... Which one? Ringo? Uh, <laughs> sorry. I don't think it was a musical one. <laughs> Terrible. Sorry. <laughs> so um, we imported rock elm from Canada. and It didn't come from Holland, funnily enough. We imported rock elm from Canada, Canada, which has been felled and shipped over here. And then the bark of these trees that they imported, was we, they brought the beetle in. And so it finds its way and it burrows into the under the bark, lays its eggs infects the tree and nine times out of ten kills it you know right so that's how that happened we've had the same thing going the other way there was an age there's an asian beetle that has, in, has carried a disease to america and infected their ash and so that's they've got a real problem with that and it's because i think it's the, that international travel trade you know which of course is good for us really but um probably didn't think about these effects that would happen because when very much every country's got its own treescape and own kind of trees that they've developed to suit that country, the climate, the landscape, etc. And for a very, you know, for millions of years or thousands of years, say for Britain, for instance, we were an island. We've been an island for 7,000 years, 6,000 years. So nothing's changed. Because looking in tree time, they adapt to to um, suit their environment, you know. So, so any foreign elements coming in, yeah, they can they can be um, uh, what's the word um, compromised. They Absolutely. So, like the same in the same way that when the when the Americans, uh, well, when we landed in the Americas and we went and saw the native tribes, we spread disease and, and wiped some of them out in the same way as if we went to the Amazon and found a, a tribe yeah. and we went and shook their hand. There's a very real possibility that the things that don't even make a dent in our immune system... We'll kill um, them off, and that's happened time and again. And it's because they've got no immunity to even the common cold because they've had no exposure to it, you know. So it's exactly the same, I suppose, Yeah, really. And also in the same way that in the 1850s, a, a rich landowner brought in the grey squirrel from America as a sort of status symbol and having no idea that within 100 years it would have colonised the whole island and pretty much wiped out the, our native reds, you know. It's that it, kind of thing. <laughs> ecology is fascinating, isn't it? Is, it is, it is. It's a Game of Thrones. 
It really is. And it's this idea of everything being natural. You quite often hear, well, we want it to be natural. And then you've got to ask yourself, well, what is natural? You know, And quite often we take ourselves out of that equation. But people have always been here with trees uh, for as long as they've been in Britain. You know, So yeah. we're a part of it. And obviously there's a lot more of us now and we're more industrialised and uh, we're much more dangerous to them, I suppose. But you've got, you know, we've, I think it's important to include us in the story because we, yeah. we're not separate to it. We're part of it, you know. Integral part of it, I, I, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, absolutely. So why do these, why do these tree, are they called tree pandemics? Is this what we're going to call them? Or do they have, do they have a term? Is, are there, is there a... I think that's a good. I think you've just coined the right term, Andy. I haven't heard that before, but yeah, I think that we should okay. start using that. All right, a tree pandemic. How do these begin? Because I know with human pandemics, the the reason that we're being told this is happening and and, and may happen again in the future at increasing rates, is it's our encroachment further encroachment onto nature which is forcing different forms of livestock and wildlife in closer proximity to each other where these illnesses can mutate um, between the species and eventually get to a point where it can become what do they call it it's zoo um oh it's uh zoological or something and then it comes to a point where we can catch it and it is, it is so with a human pandemic the 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 rules are very different but is that the same with tree stuff is it because there's a people start planting different things nearer to other trees what's the net how's it how's that form that was a very long-winded weird question for you i appreciate that but yeah well i'll try and answer i don't know if i can because i'm certainly not an expert on this you know i mean but um but yeah it's the it's it's move it's the movement of say pathogens for instance is the movement is bringing it in so you know we've brought them in in plants in pots from other countries and we've probably exported some as well you know yeah so i think you take somewhere like australia um, where they've got really tight borders on you know they won't even let you in with mud on your shoes at the airport you know that kind of thing just trying to to minimise that transportation of, of things you don't want, really, you know. Yeah. But obviously the cat's out of the bag with a lot of those things now, so we'll just have to see what happens, you know. It's difficult. It's fascinating. So tell me tell me where where your love of trees began. So you're a punk rocker um, <laughs> and you love trees. Now that usually is reserved for, you know, you're a dirty hippie in the punk rock, in the original punk rock scene. If you were a tree, you love trees in nature, you were a tree hugging hippie, and uh, you couldn't be trusted uh, in the, you know, the words of, um, I think, it was, who was that? Johnny Rotten? That was Johnny Rotten, yeah. Never trust a hippie. So, did you find your love of trees from being chained to them, protecting them at some Greenpeace event somewhere, or what? What was the? No, no, much, <laughs> no, much earlier than that. I was a kid. I was a young boy, I suppose, and I was. I grew up in a housing estate, you know, but behind our housing estate there was some woodland. There was eight acres of woodland. So, as well as playing in the street, we used to go and play in the woods and climb trees, build camps, all that kind of thing. And there was a lot of kids down our street. There's probably about 20 of us. And we all used to just, in the days when you left your back door open, you could just go off until it was dark and come back home, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I feel really lucky to have had that. And it was in Surrey. I think that's where I got my love of, of nature. So 
sometimes when the other kids had gone home, I would stay in the woods or I'd go there on my own and just sit there and I'd see deer and foxes and, you know, just appreciate nature, really. But we were also, we were quite close to Windsor. Windsor Great Park was one of the first royal forests when William the Conqueror came over in 1066. He made Windsor one of his early strongholds. So he set up a royal forest, which was basically a place for him to go and hunt. And nobody else was allowed on the land because it was his, you know. So um, so there are trees there that survive from that period. So although he didn't intend to create this beautiful ancient tree landscape, in effect, that's his legacy in one part of his legacy, you know. So, and, and we used to... The main road goes right through the middle of Windsor Park, near Windsor Castle. And it's all parkland with wonderful, amazing ancient trees. I mean, it's got hundreds of, of big, fat, hollow oaks that have been there for 500,000 years, some of them, you know. It's, so I used to see those sitting in the back of the car with my dad when he'd take me to his warehouse. He was a publisher, and he'd take me to the book warehouse in Slough. And we'd go through Windsor on the way, and I'd see these, these amazing trees, and they just... I don't know, they just fascinated me and sparked my imagination even as a youngster. It's that sense of history, you know, what's happened under these trees. What stories could they tell? You know, it's a, that's another cliche and people always say it, but it is. it fascinated me from an early age. So I suppose I grew up with that passion, but I didn't do anything with it. I'd always appreciated it, but I got into publishing because I, as a graphic designer, a book designer, and I worked for this uh, company called Francis Frith Collection, and they've got a historic archive of Britain in photographs dating back to the 1860s. So you can look, you know, you can look at your town in years gone by, that kind of thing. It's a really fascinating resource. And you see your own town, and that's when it really hits you because you recognise it, but it's 150 years ago, you know. And I stumbled across a photograph of this tree called the Major Oak, which is in Sherwood Forest, which, of course, is where Robin Hood was supposed to be. So yeah. they call this tree the Robin Hood tree, and I'd visited it on a school trip. And it's a hu- it's 10 metres in circumference. It's completely hollow. You could stand inside it comfortably, you know. It may be a 1,000 years old. So I remember seeing it, as a, visiting as a kid, and, and looking at this old photo, I, I was thought it just rekindled that memory. Yeah. And I thought, let's go there on holiday. I would want to go and see it. So I went there, and I took my camera, I took a photograph of it, and then I noticed that... The photo, the difference in 150 years was basically, you, could, you couldn't tell the difference. It was 150 right. years have passed. The tree looked exactly the same, you know, right. had the same shape, the same character. And we don't know how old they are. I keep saying 1,000 years, 500 years, but we don't really know because the only way of dating a tree accurately is to take a core sample, you know, with an, with an increment borer and then can't literally count the tree rings. But because our... Ancient trees are always hollow because they don't need the inner rings to survive, so it decays. You can't get an accurate date, so it's always an estimate. Right, I see. So, and that started my journey on books. You know, I, I, then I found another old photo and another, and it just spiralled and became an obsession. Took my life over <laughs> and sent me around the world, really. You know, but so that's how it happened, mate. Our obsessions should take us around the world. That's, <laughs> I agree. That's. Uh... It's a beautiful thing. Um, and I do want to talk about your travels as well because I've always been drawn to people who have travelled and I've always aspired to be well-travelled because I do believe that it, it, it does it does kick off ignorance and it, and it you know, fends off ignorance and, you know, stagnation of, of culture, you know, cultural stagnation. <laughs> but that, what you talked about when you grabbing a core, 
sample. For the listener, I think I understand what it is. But the, you know when you have a piece of cheese and you want to t- you want to taste it, and they plunge that that round thing into it, and then they pull it out, and there's a you know a piece of cheese from the middle, and you've got the whole sort of you know outer layer into the into the middle. That is essentially what you're doing with with the tree. Is that correct? So you're, yeah, that's you're exactly a, it. So it's like a big corkscrew, and you literally screw it into the tree. And it's and it's only sort of ten fifteen mil wide, you know, so it does minimal damage really. But and you can you can cork, go to the core of the tree, and then it, when you take it out, it brings that sample out with it, and you can you can put it under a microscope and literally count the the rings because obviously a tree grows a new ring every year, you know. So what I did what I what I did find out, and what makes me uh, the reason I, I can say almost with confidence is that oak trees can live for a thousand years is because I went to America and what I found there, you know, they've got the biggest, the tallest and the oldest trees all in America, all in California. Of course they would. Everything's <laughs> bigger and, you know, Absolutely. better and stuff in America, isn't it? Even the trees. The thing about their trees is that the, uh, well, the giant redwoods and uh, another tree called a bristlecone pine, lots of the trees, they don't decay inside. So they don't, they don't hollow out like our trees do. Sometimes they do, but not always. So a lot of the trees have got that ring going right to the centre. And so they looked at the um, giant sequoias, you know, that what, uh, and they found that one of them was 3,200 years old. You know, wow. that is proven fact there's there's no disputing that it's it's scientifically proven so and this was one of the giant sequoias the big redwoods you know so and they thought well because they're the biggest tree in the world they must be the oldest but there was a guy called ed shulman who looked in the next mountain range along which is sierra nevada uh, not from the sierra nevada in the white mountains and there is this grove of trees there's an ancient forest called of bristlecone pines and they're little stunted pine trees pretty small and stunted and half only got half the bark on them you know they look half dead if you like right he had an idea these were really old so he took call samples of those and he found one to be five thousand years old wow so we know that trees can live for that long you know and there's an old english saying that says uh, about oaks that said 300 years young 300 mature 300 in decay you know so that covers that millennial period if you like so so that makes me think yeah they can trees can live that long you know so why can't our ours and, you know and i guess by that measure they age a little bit like we do and you know you said he only had half the bark and it was a bit you know is it visually you, you look at that tree and go oh this one has weathered some actual literal storms yeah absolutely so and what happens say take an ancient an ancient oak i mean you you think of a beautiful oak these big trees but as they get older, they grow down. So part of their survival strategy is to literally grow down. So they lose the top canopy. Right. You've probably seen stag-headed branches sometimes. And you can almost see that second canopy uh, evolving as they grow down to conserve energy. They get right. big and fat and hollow out um, and then become, as in the process, giving life as, as they decay. So all that decaying wood gives yeah. life to so many other species, you know. Oh, it's, it, it, it is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's I mean, returning English, to the earth. Yeah, basically, yeah. And they're also composting themselves. So all the decay in the inside of the wood they no longer lead is decayed by fungi and beetles, etc. And it breaks down into the uh, to the base of the tree and, and feeds the tree at the same time, you know. 
It's just, it's perfect, isn't it? It is perfect. Yeah, yeah fantastic. It's, it's bloody great. Um, so I want to get into how you, once you decided that you were, you were obsessed with trees and this was your, do you feel like you had an inner compass that just said, yeah, this is actually where you need to be right now. This is, this is what we feel is in the, you know, the you, we, the, I don't know, the collective, not the collective, we, whatever that, you know, we have decided uh, that this is where we need to go. You, your head, your heart, you know, your gut. Um, did you feel that quite strongly? Yes. I mean, at first, not necessarily at first. It was almost accidental, to be honest with you, because, it, right. like I say, it just started as a passion and then a hobby. But once I started looking at these old photographs, I started discovering more and more. And the, the Victorians kept a really great record, you know, right. of of major landmarks, beautiful trees that they were starting to go and visit, that kind of thing, and give names. They started to name them, you know, the Druid's Oak or Queen Elizabeth's Oak or, you know, all this kind of thing, a romantic notion yeah. uh, of of their surroundings. So there's a real um, a wealth of material to draw on. And I ended up, I thought, this is a book, you know, because I was in publishing. It's a book, you know, there's a book in this. So yeah. I started trying to put it together with the publishing company I was working for, who were going to do it. It didn't happen. Um, but then the further I went, the more into it I got. And I was convinced it was, a pro- you know, it's got a, it's got legs, it's got to work. And it, then it took hold, I suppose. And because I was in publishing, I think actually, because it was my working life, I always had a trouble promoting my music as a musician, you know. And I think <laughs> musicians, people say, what kind of music do you do? And it was like, well, well, I still can't answer that question I because yeah. as a, as a, I mean, you can say you're in a punk rock band, but I think I was trying to not necessarily do punk and I couldn't describe what my music was. Someone else probably could have done, you know. And yeah. I think that's why maybe as a, a musician you need an agent or a manager or someone who's distanced from the slightly distanced from from it who can who can sell it better basically yeah I, I found it really difficult to sell music for some reason i didn't find it difficult to sell the book probably because i'd been working in it as a a business if you like you know yeah and there's often uh not to digress too much with, with the music but often with music um it there's an awkward conversation around money and so a lot of people don't know how to sell their art or make yeah. money out of their music yes um and for some reason, music doesn't always, if you're an unproven artist, it doesn't always seem to hold any value for people. And that's the weird thing, isn't it? It's Absolutely. when you, you apply for a job and they say, well, you need experience. And it's like, well, yeah. um, well, I would get some experience if you'd, if you'd hire me. So it's a bit like that, isn't it? It's like, well, we're not going to invest in this music until you've, you know, you've proven to have... Uh, to, to have sold some or, or, or been successful and then it's like well you know um if you invest in it now then i will <laughs> it'll happen yeah, yeah i get that so well actually talking in that sense i suppose um the punk rock background um sort of manifested itself in my publishing books as well because you just do it yourself I, I did eventually. I mean, the yeah. first book, I um, I went to every publisher in London and I got some really good bites. And it was like trying to get a record deal in that same way. You're banging on the door. You're saying, "This, look at my, you know, look at my book." And um, and I, I had I thought it was going to happen a few times, and it's quite often you're there, but and then it goes quiet and it doesn't happen, you know. And yeah. I'd got to the point where I thought 
Uh, I've been everywhere. I don't know what to do to make this work, you know. And someone suggested to me, they said, send it to the National Trust. You know, they'd love this. And And I said, well, actually, they've got another guy working on an ancient tree book at the moment and you know that's why I haven't been to them because they've got someone but I just sent it anyway as a last sort of ditch attempt mm. and they rang me straight up and within a week I had a publishing deal because the guy who'd written their book had given them a text and it apparently it was a huge 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 tome and they said look we want to do something mainstream this we're going to have to edit this down and the, the writer I don't know who it was said um, I'm not you're not editing a word of it. No. So they fell out. And that time that happened was when my book fell on their desk and that filled the slot they'd already had. So it was a right place, right time thing. I was just about to say, it's exactly, (laughs) it's the the story of me, you know, well, it happened to be the right place at the right time. And and yeah, that's fantastic. What I am interested in as well is how you self-taught. I mean, it's very easy to self-teach, isn't it, when you're obsessed with something because you yeah. just you're in sponge mode because your your heart is in it. So yeah. how how while well you're holding down a job is is Jake born at this point? Is there any? Have you got your kid? Yes, kids Jake born? was born. Yeah, Jake was definitely born. I mean, this all started, I suppose. Oh, it's 2011, thi- isn't it? Of course, he was born. Yeah, the book came out, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the book that's when the book was published. But I've been working on it since sort of 2005, uh, 2006, something like that. It take me five years to do these books because it's a it's a long process to research and travel and then put it all together. So they take me four or five five years to do. So So Jake was considerably younger than he is now at this point. And so you had to juggle that. And I did, but I'd take him with I'd take him with me. So it was yeah, I was working full time at the time. So for a company. So it would be weekends, holidays. My whole family had to sort of pitch in really. I was very (laughs) lucky to have a forgiving family to do that. But I, you know, we'd go for for a walk in the woods, like, oh, let's go and see this tree, you know, or whatever, you know. So, and Jake used to come with me as a young boy, and you'll see him in my first book, in a lot of the photographs, because I always try and put people in the photographs, because I just give some perspective on the sense of scale, yeah. the size of these trees, you know, because if you don't have a person there, it just looks like a tree. You put a you put someone in with a tree, and suddenly you go, wow, that's huge, you know. So, and it's and also it visually dates it, and I'm hope I'm. I'm hoping in it maybe in a hundred years someone will look at my photos as they as I've looked at the Victorian ones. Yeah. Because when you see you you get that period in your head, then do you know what I mean? The it, the uh, it's historic photographic dating, really. You know. Yeah. So it's a bit of that. Let's move on to the uh, let's move on to your world travels. That's book. Is that book two? Yeah. 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 In 2015, that comes out. And so you've brought out the first book via the National Trust, and it's called Britain's Tree Story. Um, does it sell well? Is it is it a good uh, a good? Because I'm wondering how you fund all the trips that that then uh, happen for you to research the second book. Is there an advance on this uh, book? Is what what's what, what's the deal there? Yeah, I got an advance on the first book, so much as like you would with a record deal, the same kind of thing. And then you get royalties paid once that advance is reached. So I think they printed 7,000 with the first print run, which was actually for these days is quite a good number. But I think they were expecting that to be it, you know. But it's actually reprinted every year um, since 2011. So every other year, a couple of times. But it's now, it's hit eight reprints and they're going to reprint again next month. So I think they were at, 
very shocked that that happened because they weren't expecting it, you know. So it's hit a chord somewhere. And I, I must say, I haven't made a lot of money out of that first book because you don't get much royalties as a as a new author. But it has opened the door for me, you know, as a someone who's you know serious about it. Yeah. And people have seen it. It's a quality, high quality um, book. You know, it's a very they're very heavily illustrated. So there's a lot of nice pictures. There's text as well, but it's quite photographic. So the idea is you can dip in and out, coffee table kind of book. Yeah. So for the second book, I went back to National Trust and said, look, I'm going to do, because I'd, I'd travelled all over Britain for the first book. And then when it was over, it's like, well, what am I going to do with myself? <laughs> I know, I'll go around the world and do the same thing, which was, I sort of made a rod for my own back, but I, it was that same dedication to it again. You know, I once I've made a decision, I was going to do it. Yeah. Um, and I tried to get it published by National Trust, but they said, no, we're National Trust, we only do UK, you know, so... Uh, so I looked further afield and it was the same story again. But I thought, well, look, I know how to do it now. I, I'm a graphic designer. I can design it myself. So yeah. I hired an editor, really, uh, a girl, girl called Anna Carr in, in my town, Froome. And she edited the book with me. So I had some feedback there because um, you often don't see your own mistakes, that kind of thing. Oh, I know. So, I, yeah. So I did it myself and self-published uh, I mean, then I, but then you've got a whole, oh, crikey, there's a whole, there's a whole new world, you know, distribution, uh, all the major outlets, they don't buy from little men like me, they want to buy from a distributor central. So then I had to go to a distributor, get, find a distributor, take my books. Um, and they say, oh, no, we don't take from, uh, we don't take from sort of one man band kind of things. And I said, well, my last <laughs> book sold over 30,000 copies. And they went, oh, yeah, okay, we'll do it. That kind of thing. <laughs> so it opened the door in that sense, you know. Yeah. And I haven't looked back, really. And so where do you, uh, you know, again, we're going to use a musical analogy, you know, you're going to have to be a bit of, you're going to have to be your own tour manager, I guess, at some point and, and track a route. Yeah, and I've and I, I haven't I haven't really booked any of my own tours. I've been very lucky that bandmates and others have done it for me. But there's there's routing involved, isn't there, and logistics. And it's like, well, if we're going here, we may as well try and get a show there and here and there and blah 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 blah. So how did you plan out your world tour um, around trees to be the most economic in terms of your I guess your carbon footprint and your expenditure? Yes, carbon footprint is a really good point actually and um so i tried to do i mean obviously i could travel around europe i could go by train i use my bike a lot actually um i did drive some of it i got to say i did use easyjet for other places we're going to america japan australia new zealand was unavoidable isn't it it is really but i was driven to do it you know so and it wasn't all on a shoestring. Everything was on a shoestring because I, I was still working at the time when I did most of my travels for the World Tree Story book. So I had some funding for myself, but I had no support from anybody else. Um, so I sold a lot. I had a, I've lived in the same house for 20 years. I found that I had a lot of stuff I didn't need. So I basically <laughs> almost sold everything. I kept my guitars, you know. And um, so any way I could find to, to help finance that, and it would be every holiday, every weekend... I could do weekend trips to Europe. I'd, I'd, uh, I ended up going to thirty nine countries, you know, and it was just, it was magnificent. You've, I think you've got to have some, a little bit of obsession, obsessional nature to be able to do that, really, because, like you said, you know, I was the logistics manager, I was the tour manager, if you like, 
And I didn't, I always wanted to tour the world with a band. It never happened for me. I toured the world for trees instead. <laughs> so, so I'd go out in the day from, from dawn to dusk looking at trees, photographing them. And then at the night time, I'd try and soak up some of the culture of wherever I was, you know. Because again, again, it's about people and trees. It's not, yeah. I try and put our relationship with them, you know, and what they've meant to us and the stories right. that have happened underneath them, you know, in that time. So. I love that. Touring, touring the world with, you know, trees, you know. <laughs> this is a tough crowd. They're so wooden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. That is, I, I do like that aspect, though, of the, the human the human aspect when it, when it comes to trees and, and part of, uh, but being part of the story because I, I imagine probably maybe not probably but in a tribal sense I think trees may have different importance as well there may be ceremonial aspects to to things and you know like a bonsai tree for example is a, is a symbol of other I don't know what the symbol of it is other than you you know you maintain it and you're responsible for it aren't you I think that's sort of the um it's a relationship isn't it it's a relationship I think I, I went to Japan and it was one of the most fantastic places that I visited and it was just full of surprises for me because you've got an, you, when you visit anyway, you've got an idea of how you expect it to be. But when you get there, invariably, it might be like that. But you, you know, you're usually quite wrong in some cases. And Japan was like that. It was just surprise, full of surprises. The country, you know, you've got this, you've got this uh, um, historic tradition, you know, in Japan. But you've also got the latest technology and everything, and it sits side by side, you know, in quite comfortably. Really, it's strange how it works. Really friendly people, but in, as, as far as the trees go, I mean, the country's seventy-five percent mountains. So I've got an idea that bonsai you know, was started because they had little space, you know, and they like to make these Japanese gardens which mimics the natural landscape in miniature, if you like. You know, you see, uh, you see it everywhere in in the shrines. So. I think maybe it came from that, but they're meticulous in their attention to detail. I mean, a bonsai, they take a pine tree in, in Japan and make it into a bonsai and they prune every needle individually. You know, that's how meticulous they are. But what I found with the ancient trees, the big old trees, um, and Japan in particular actually, was why they survive. You know, they're not just there. They, a tree is pretty lucky to have stayed there for you know, a thousand years. And there's always a reason, and it's usually down to us, if they're in a community of people. So in Japan, the ancient trees survive because they're sacred trees, you know. They've got, they've still got their Shinto religion, which is, if you like, a pagan religion, where they think the spirits or the gods are in certain landscaped landmarks. So it could be a waterfall, the god would be in the waterfall or a rock or a tree right. so some of these trees are the spirits so they survive in the in the in the shrines in the japanese shrines so you'll go and visit the sacred temple and literally pray to the tree you know there was one great camphor tree they thought it was a thousand years old it's 30 meters in circumference it's an absolute giant you know wow. and and people queue up to pray and they do a, they do a little clap and then they do a bow and they say their prayer to the tree and then walk around the tree once and you and make a wish, you know, of whatever's troubling you at that time. It was just fantastic to see. And it was so natural. And I think that kind of thing was definitely happened in this country and other, 
European countries where it may be lost in now, you know. Christianity changed that in a big way, but say pre-Christianity, the old yew trees in our churchyards, you know, were quite often there before the churches were built, you know, right. and they were probably sacred trees to an earlier religion. Right. You know, so there's definitely that connect human spiritual connection as well, you know. It's fascinating, really. It is. It is. Um, how a lot of Eastern religion or philosophy is often deeply rooted in this the symbiotic nature of you know us and and the land and how it, you know so often in the west and I'm, and I'm a complete hypocrite but so often in the west you know we take we just take from the land don't we we just take it is there to provide things for us but i think in in eastern thinking is that you know it's a, a give and take isn't it and that you must I mean, it's in our, it's in the Bible, isn't it? It's in the Western Bible uh, of Christianity, isn't it? Is that we are, we are here to look after the earth and, and everything, you know? So I guess it is sort of present for us. But I just feel like out east, they're just far more mindful of of the world and nature as a whole, and it being part of their lives. I suppose because it's civilization and urbanization has has played a big key role in sort of detaching us from that, really. Right. Yes. I think that's probably what it is, and. And a lot more people and a lot less space as well is another thing. Yeah. Uh, but I think maybe with this, you know, with the with the COVID and the lockdown and people ha- going out and walking in the woods, or especially where we live, it's more difficult in a city, of course. But get if you can get out some to some beautiful spot and have a walk and realizing how good it is for you, you know, yeah. what a good thing it is to do. And I think that's really opened up for a lot of people, which that is one positive I can think of about COVID, the whole COVID situation is that people are enjoying their environment and thinking more about that aspect of it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I bumped into a friend of mine's parents in the first lockdown and they, they've they lived 20 minutes away from, from this woods for 20 years or something. And they were like, "Oh, we've just discovered this, this, you know, these woods." And they were like, "Oh, it was so beautiful! It was full of bluebells, and there was no one there, and it was just the most beautiful, untouched, you know, thing." And they were like, "Oh, we couldn't believe that it's been there all along, and we never found it." Yeah, I think, and maybe I think some eyes are being opened, you know, because of that, because people are getting out there, and hopefully that'll have a beneficial impact, really. Yeah. That's that's my hope anyway. I mean, you know, doctors, some doctors are prescribing a walk in the woods, you know, for, to help with depression and, and other mental illness, that kind of thing. And I know f- from experience having done, I do it all the time. You know, I need to get out and do that uh, for my own well-being. It makes you feel good. Yeah. You know, trees give out pheromones which make you feel good. It's, a, it's, a, it's so nat- such a natural thing, you know. So, yeah, hopefully that's going to have a good effect. We're up against all sorts of, you know, human disasters at the moment concerning our trees. But do you, I think you've got to try and keep hold of the positive. You know, and what I've noticed from, from doing my books, and it, I may notice it because I'm involved in it. I did do a lot of talks before the lockdowns, that kind of thing. So I'm meeting people all the time. But I just think it's a growing, it's a, a real, um, it's blossoming. Yeah. <laughs> It's growing. That sound, you know, that no pun intended. People getting in touch with nature again, really, you know, which I think is so important and so natural. You know, there's nothing hippie about it, really. It's the most natural thing in the world, as far as I can see. 
Uh, well, the other thing I was going to ask you is, uh, have you been to that... F- and I don't want to make this morbid, but have you? there's a famous forest in Japan which is famous for suicides. Did you visit that forest? Is there anything particular about that forest that you've heard of that, you know, is of, of no. note? <laughs> in a word? No, I haven't been there. No, sorry. Oh, it's sorry. a hotspot for suicides. And it's... Um, right. Can you remember what it's um, called? I think... I'm not sure. I think it's just called the Suicide Forest or something like that. And it sits at the, it sits at the base of Mount Fuji, I believe. Well, Mount Fuji okay. is very visible from it. And uh, there was a YouTuber that went to to Japan and did a vlog, and he went uh, in into the uh, into the forest, and they were walking around and everything, and they were being very like, "Oh, this is the suicide forest," and you know, a little bit most haunted about it, you know, and oh, looking around, and then they actually did stumble across uh, someone. They'd found someone, and he decided stupidly to post the video on the internet of it in the in the vlog. And he caught an awful lot of flack for it for being incredibly insensitive and, you know, trying to capitalise on the the shock value of it. And, uh, yeah, I think it just put that sort of, that forest on the map a little. And I just didn't know whether there may have been a little bit more to it. Uh, I know the suicides thing has nothing to do with the trees necessarily, but I'm wondering if it had any, if there was any special reason that, that you know, it was in that particular forest, whether there was any um, tradition or uh, mythology around it where people would choose to go to that place of all places to do it. Well, I don't know, but I mean, it does remind, you know, there there is a lot of suicide in Japan. I do know that, you know. From, from different reasons to how it used to be historically. But the, the tradition in Japan, the samurai way, you know, is it, it, there's no shame in, in, um, in you know, hagakari from, yeah. from, you know, putting the sword in yourself, basically. So, uh, and, it's li- and it's dying beautiful as well. So maybe, maybe doing it in a forest is that beauty attached to Potentially. it? Potentially. Because in Japan, they've actually got, um, they sort of invented this term forest bathing, which is now swept across the world where, you know, where you go into the woods to literally bathe in the forest in the sense that you're absorbing everything around you, you know. And that's been something that's been done a long time in Japan, you know, it's, and it's, it's now coming over to the West you know, as a as a, a thing to do, you know, the latest fad, if you like, but actually it's a really good fad. I mean, they've, you know, they've discovered that trees give off pheromones that do make you feel good. And for instance, there's a thing where trees are supposed to talk to each other. And I don't like the term talk to each other because that assumes they talk like you and I, you know, but they do, I do think communicate, they definitely communicate. So if one, if an oak is being attacked by insects, it, it'll give off a pheromone which lets the other trees know that that's happening. So when that, and it's only localised, so that pheromone will sweep across to the other trees. And when they sense that, they fill their leaves with tannins and the insects come onto that tree and they don't like the taste of the leaves, you know, because they've pushed out the tannins. I mean, that's just an amazing thing, isn't it? You know, so they are, there's all this chemical thing, there's all these chemicals going on in a, in a forest, different trees have different ones. And it definitely has an effect on us as people, you know, can make you feel good about yourself. I know if I'm in a bad mood and I go to the woods, within 10 minutes, usually, uh, unless it's something particularly drastic, 
I feel that that's lifted. You know, it's really it's it's a good thing to do. You know. Also, talking about Japan and the and the forest thing. When I went to Japan, I went in in the spring because I want to see the cherry blossom, basically. So, which is a massive thing in Japan. It's uh, there's a thing called the Sakura Zensen, and which means following the cherry tr- cherry blossom. So, because Japan's long and thin, north to south, you can you can follow the blossoming of the cherry trees and it's such a fleeting beauty that it's become impassioned with the whole nation they love it they go out and they have parties in the parks for that fleeting beauty and then it's gone you know so it's there's a it's that beautiful uh, beautiful death again you know comes into it if you like that's amazing some of my favorite memories of growing up were so near near where we live here in Froome there's a village called Chapman's Lade which is where my grandparents live, where my grandmother lives. My, my grandfather's no longer with us. And that's where my dad grew up. And so when I would be dropped off there for school holidays and some odd weekend bits and pieces to, you know, spend time with the grandparents and, you know, let my parents go to work or whatever when I was younger, one of the things that my grandfather used to do, because I've got ADHD and obviously as a, as a kid – you know, that's a lot of energy already on top of a lot of energy. And so one of the things he would do, I think, would probably be like, right, let's get the wellies on. Let's go down the woods. Let's get the dogs out. We go down the woods because I can just get let let loose in there. And those are some of my favourite memories is running around with trees, uh, with sticks and whacking them against the trees and, you know, running up and down the because uh, it's quite hilly. Uh, there's inclines and stuff. And I, there's a funny thing that I seem to remember is I enjoy it when I was younger, um, but then I realised that when I got older and I started to get into my teens a little bit, my younger teens, and you start getting the... Um, a bit of testosterone and and you know the all these that uh, like uh you know you're starting to sort of you know puberty's hitting and that that's when i sort of became far more destructive and any rotten tree stump and everything that was getting karate kicked and <laughs> destroyed <laughs> and it's weird you can map it the older i got the the angrier things got in there but there's such good memories of just running around what well, how is it now andy what's it like when you go there now <laughs> Have you calmed oh, down I just a bit? Now? It. Yeah, I've, I've, I've leveled out. I know that woods. It's uh, black dog, black dog wood, isn't it? That's it. Yeah. How it got the name Black Dog Wood? The story goes that there was uh, there were two suitors who both uh, who both fancied the the maiden, and um, they both wanted her hand in marriage, and they couldn't sort this out between themselves. So they decided the two guys decided to have a duel in Black Dog Wood. So, you know, in the 1850s, this would have been. So it was 40 paces, walk away from each other with the pistols, turn and fire, you know. One of the guys shot the other guy, dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guy who he shot had a black dog who then attacked the guy who'd shot him and mauled him to death. Uh. And the maiden, distraught, committed suicide uh. and was buried at uh, Dead Maid's Cross, they call it. Yes, which is just down the road. And that's why it's Dead Maid's Cross. And I so see. that's why they call it Black Dog Woods. And apparently, if you, if you, I probably shouldn't say it, but if you, if you see a black dog in the woods, you're not going to survive very long, apparently. Ah, so that I, I think there was probably a reason I wasn't told that story as a child was, was yeah, possibly was that I would come running back to the top of the woods, having thought I'd seen some sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so whether that's uh, you know based on any 
truth or not. Well, I don't know. never let the truth get in the way of the good story. Well, do you know what? And I agree. I, I know that. I know that. But, uh, you know, I use mythology and legend in my books all the time. Right. And I tr- don't necessarily make a distinction from history because I think it's just as important because it's how the locals have believed it, you know. Yeah. And quite often there's a, there's a nugget of truth in there, you know. But um, Colloquially... You know, yeah. black dogs would. Um, can you tell me uh, on that subject? Then, can you tell me about a few other places you visited in in the world that have m- myths attached to them, or or sort of a supernatural element to their sort of appeal? Yeah, and the same kind of things happen wherever you go. You know, with different people. So America hasn't got such a great. I say it hasn't got such great history. Of course, the Native Americans were there long before. But I couldn't find a lot out about that, you know, because they didn't they didn't have the written records, and maybe a lot of it's been lost, the oral records, you know. But somewhere like New Zealand, um, which has got the Maori culture, they've got these giant trees in New Zealand in the North Islands called cowrie trees. I mean, we think of we think of uh, New Zealand as being a little bit. People often liken it to Wales, you know, the rolling green hills and the sheep. Um, but of course, that's the way it's become westernised when the, when the Europeans first got there. Actually, my family were early settlers in New Zealand in 1853. They took a boat from, from Grey's End to New Zealand, which took three months. Over time, 23 people died on the ship on the way there. <laughs> and when they got there, there was no one to meet them. And they just came across this rainforest island, you know, and had to hack their way in and try and make a living, you know. And they're still there. They've been there ever wow. since. They, it's an amazing story. But, of course, when they got there, the Maoris had already been living there for almost a 1,000 years. Yeah. And uh, But they'd lived with the forest, you know, these giant cowrie trees, which are a little bit like, this, think of the redwoods, that kind of scale, you know. They almost look like upside-down trees. And uh, the story goes, the biggest tree there, which is it's 2,000 years old, again, they can date it with the ring boring, you know, a 2,000-year-old tree, it's called Tane Mahuta, and it's named after the god of the forest, who was Tane. Right. Um, and apparently he created the forest and and then put birds in the forest. You know, So he, he's the god of the forest, if you like. But he realised that he, when he was planting the trees, the very first trees, he thought he'd put them in upside down. So he pulled <laughs> them all up and stuck them back in the other way because the, the, the branches look like roots, you know. So that's where the, these creation stories come from. But you've got the same story happening in Africa with the baobab tree trees okay they call those up does upside down trees as well because apparently they were put in the wrong way so there's these um similarities that prop up all over the world because people aren't that different i don't think wherever you you know we're all different we've got different culture and customs but as basic people we're all wired the same aren't pretty we? much we're all, we're, we're, all, we're all evolved to fo- to seek the same patterns i guess and, yeah and i guess you will have some overlap in that regard that's bloody fascinating that is <laughs> I love that. Um, we, we're very lucky to have Longleat Park yes. close to where we live. And they have, um, again, I am not a tree specialist. Notice how I didn't say expert. Yeah, well um, I'm not a tree specialist, but they, I believe they have quite the collection of, of different trees there, don't they? It's quite a smorgasbord, if you will. Of, of um, Yeah, they've got their own kind of arboretum. And what, what I've found is, I mean... Longleat for us living in this part of the world, that's the nearest to Froome. That's the best place for ancient trees, you know. That yeah. and and it almost gives you a picture of what our ancient treescape looked like. So that when I was talking about the open grown trees, you call it wood pasture, you know. So you've got these big trees 
spaced out with lots of spaced apart with lots of grazing animals in between then making use of the shade you know what happened as life develops and we became more civilized then people bought these big plots of land and made their estates and they'd almost emulate that wood pasture landscape which became called parkland you know which was a bit more tidy parkland is like tidy wood pasture if you like so looking at that if you look across at Longleat, you can see there's loads of big trees everywhere but there's space between them isn't there so they would have had their deer park in there i mean i've been lucky enough to I record trees for the Woodland Trust Ancient Tree Inventory, which is a, um, a, a database for our ancient trees, because we knew we had a lot in Britain, but we didn't know how many. So they started an online database where you can literally add your own trees. You can go and take a photograph of it, record it, measure it at chest height to get a, a, a you know a circumference, which gives an indicator of age, you know, the bigger, the older, generally. So I got permission to go and photograph and... Uh, record all the trees at Longleat. So I've added about 500 trees. Um, some of those trees you could say, although there's a lot of plantings from around the world, because as with the squirrels, they wanted status, bring in these new trees, grow these great trees. There are also some amazing natives trees, native trees that could be, I mean, there's a tree there. I call it the lion of Longleat. It's eight metres in circumference. It's completely hollow. Right. I've seen barn owls and bats fly out of it and ravens and buzzards in its branches it's it's a biodiversity hotspot you know oaks can support 3000 species of animal you know so you've got one ecosystem in one tree you know some creatures will never leave it except to maybe go and mate and move to another tree so they're really great for biodiversity these trees you know and i've i've, I've got an idea that that tree could be 750 years old which predates even longley you know the family have owned that estate for 500 years but prior to that, it was a monastery and it was probably in the monastery grounds. You know, it's just incredible, really. So, yeah, we're very lucky to, to have that. And that's where I find myself a lot in this country is on manorial estates, because that's where these trees have had the time and space to, to stay there. That is um, absolutely amazing. There's a, there's a tree there. Is it called a monkey tree? Is, it, is, that, is that right? Is that the, the, the definition for it? It's the, the tree that monkeys find it very hard to climb because of it. Is it the monkey puzzle tree? Or? Monkey puzzle tree, yes. From Chile. They're a Chilean tree, yeah. Have they got one at Longleat, have they? In the... I think there's one. Um, you know Heaven's Gate that overlooks? Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe on the path, I mean, unless I've got it wrong, maybe it was many, many years. Someone pointed it out to me years ago when I was there and said, this is that tree and this is why it's called that tree. I haven't seen one in the Parkland, but I do know in Southley Woods, which they also own, there's a uh, uh, there's an ancient um, monument called Robin Hood's Bower, which is an earthwork, which probably, you know, dates back uh, to Alfred's time. It's supposedly where King Alfred met his troops, and they've planted that out with monkey puzzle trees completely. Right. So there are about 50 monkey puzzle trees in there. But what is a monkey puzzle tree for the, for the listener? It's, it's a unique-looking tree, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it grows in Chile, in the western part of Chile. And um, of course it's called a monkey puzzle tree because it's covered in these spiky leaves all over. So it's sort of, you know, it would be impossible for a monkey to, to climb it, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and, and is that an evolutionary response? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. so, yes, definitely. It definitely would be an evolution to what exactly, I'm not exactly sure, but it's probably to protect itself from certain animals i mean we, trees because of their slow um metabolism i mean they you know they start to develop this thick thick bark 
to protect themselves against the mega fauna that lived around at the time, you know, the big beasts that have slowly died out. So, I mean, if you take a redwood tree in America, it's got two foot thick bark on a, on a, a giant squirrel has got bark that's two foot thick. And the reason for that is because of forest fires. And we don't have that so much in this country because it's a damper climate. But in California, it's very dry and hot. You get these forest fires happening and that's what actually makes the fir cones open is the fire so that they can regenerate because everything's been burnt away. There's a nice layer of ash for them to 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 grow in, you know. So they develop this two foot thick bark so they can survive the fire. And at the same time, it opens the cones and then you get, you get they, and then off they go again, you know. Again, nature is perfect, isn't it? Almost, yeah. It's just uh, it finds a way, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Which is the what's that? The, that uh, Jurassic Park quote, isn't it? Life finds a way. Oh, I didn't know I got it from there, but maybe subconsciously. I, I think that's it the <laughs> Talking of Jurassic Park, is do you have any facts or knowledge about prehistoric trees? Um, or maybe that's the wrong word, um, trees from a sort of more dinosaur era? Because, of course, there's there's herbivore dinosaurs, aren't there, that would be eating um, trees and leaves and things, I'd assume. Would that mean that there'd be other species that have maybe been wiped out due to that, or is there evolutionary traits? So maybe the monkey puzzle tree is, you know, a, a, a response to, like you said, predatorial um, or maybe not predators if they're carnivores, but um, you know, being eaten and picked at and whatever. Yeah, well, like everything, trees have developed, you know. So in dinosaur times, the treescape would have been very different to now, I think. But having said that, I mean, I'm going to have to look at my book to get this right. But one of the first trees was called Archaeopteris, and there's no, there's nothing like it now. But they think that was a predecessor of, uh, you know, of, of trees of today. That was 170 million years ago. So that's a long <laughs> way to look back, isn't it? But I mean, yeah. my my knowledge basically, I, I mean, I'm looking at um, you say prehistoric, but we have prehistoric trees in this country living now. I mean, I, was, I say that the oaks live for a thousand years, but yew trees, they think, can live for two, three, maybe 4,000 years, you know, and you've got 5,000-year-old trees in America. So they are prehistoric, you know, pre-BC, if you like, you know. So, um, but I think the sense you're looking at, I mean, there was, there's a, there was a tree in China called the ginkgo, which you've probably heard of. There's one outside the library in Froome. It's got beautiful yellow leaves. Um, right. That was a prehistoric tree, so that has been around for a very, very long time. And they thought it was extinct in the wild. And then in the 1930s or 1940s, somebody found a valley in China where the, the very last of them was growing wild. You know, and they thought they'd gone, they'd gone, and now they're planted everywhere. You know, yeah. So they've revived that tree, and you've even got them outside the library in Froome. You know, so that is a prehistoric tree. Oaks, even though they live for a thousand years, compared to those, haven't got such a long lineage. You know, but right. Tell me about your Activision, uh, Activision, your activism and deforestation, because I assume your activism it, it goes hand in hand with deforestation. Yes, I, yeah, I, naturally, I suppose it does. I mean, it's really, I mean, actually, it started when those woods, when I grew up as a kid behind my house, they were going to develop that. And it's developed now. It's a housing, it's also a housing estate. It, oh, it's all gone, the whole lot. So, and that was as a young man, probably 20 years old, I think that ha was when that happened around that time. So I tried to 
protested against it and got nowhere and the development happened and there's now a housing estate. So the only way that would survive, I suppose, is in my memory, really, you know. Yeah. So that's where it lives now. So I've always, so that was a that was a big thing, and my mum was really upset about it as well. But that whole area, you know, the sort of commuter belt around London is all pretty much development land, isn't it? So, but I suppose I didn't do a great deal until I came to Froome, and I saw I saw a sign up on the lamp on a lamppost in the sh- outside uh, our Marks and Spencer's store that said, <laughs> said "Application to Fell." There's a beautiful plane tree in the middle of the town and oh i know the tree you know it and we haven't got a lot of trees in the town you know there's not much there so and i saw this application to fell i thought why would they want to fell this tree it looks perfectly healthy to me you know be such a loss for the for the environment really so i decided to start one of those online petitions and this was about six seven years ago something it might have been eight years ago it might have been 2014 i think it was six years ago seven years ago so uh so i started an online petition and they were sort of that was the early days of them then. They weren't in such a, a mass as they are now. I was expecting to get maybe 100 signatures supporting me, like the old petitions I did when I was a kid. You just left it in the newsagent. People wrote their names on it, you know. Yeah. So um, within a week, 3,000 people had signed this petition to say, don't, you know, save the tree kind of thing. Um, and that's 10% of our town's population. And I was blown away by that. So then got into the local press and met the council and had photo opportunities and everything and they put a they put a tree preservation order on the tree and preserved it i was i wasn't expecting all this to happen you know i just didn't know what to do basically and it just made me think well that's a little bit of people power from the ground up you know because local people cared about this tree enough to do that uh, and it's still there now you know 6 7 years later which is i think that's great so that led me, that started me because I didn't know how to approach it. You've got to go through protocols with councils and it's no use just saying, I love this tree, leave it alone. They're not going to listen to that. Well, why, why, what reasoning is there, you know, to keep this tree? And, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a community, I, I, it's a green community asset. You know, the, the landscape would be so much worse off without it. So in a small way, I started, I started doing, you know, campaigning for trees and I've learned now how to how to try and get some protection win some you lose some you can't expect to win them all that's for sure but um yeah it's definitely worth doing and at the moment i'm seeing more more impact on our trees than i've ever seen as far as development goes you know so i think the you know development is something the building construction industry has still got the go ahead in this covid times you know um, and i think it's almost easier for them to do it now so i think you've got to be a little bit you've got to be vigilant keep an eye on these things and you know it's not trying to be obstructive it's just trying to it's as important to keep our mature trees as it is to plant trees you know the idea is well we'll cut these trees but we'll plant some new ones but you can't give the benefits of mature trees by planting little saplings you know you just don't get the benefits of that yeah if you see what i mean yeah I know what you're saying. One of the earliest examples of deforestation that I can think of historically was during one of our wars in the Tudor period when they they used to build our battleships from um was that oak? Yeah. Was there a, there was a part of the history where they almost had to stop because we we'd almost stripped our forests of uh is that correct? Am I remembering that? Properly? Yeah, it had a huge impact on um you know on our on our forest reserves. And the oak was, I mean, you could say that Britain was sort of founded on oak. Our houses were made of it. 
the, the ships were made of it. And in that medieval period, you know, Britain ruled the waves. We literally did because we had these great warships made of oak to keep that going. I mean, you need, you need an awful lot of oak trees to make a great warship like that, you know. So I think the first recorded planting of, you know, the first organised planting of trees was only recorded in uh, the 16th century, and that was Queen Elizabeth right. I, who was worried that there wasn't enough oak going forward. So she basically ordered uh, the landowners to replant with oak. One of the first replantings that was recorded on paper, because I think people have always planted oaks because there's nothing more natural than picking up an acorn. Yeah and popping it in the ground and watching it come up. You know, I do it all the time. I've got a couple of hundreds baby oaks in my back garden, <laughs> which I give out to people who've got the space to replant them to keep that perpetuity. But there's really something magical about picking up this little tiny acorn, yeah. you know, that's good, and thinking in 500 years it could be like those giants that I've been visited. That's the, yeah. that's the idea behind it. So these trees she planted at Windsor Great Park are still there, a lot of them. 500-year-old trees, you know, her legacy. Yeah. So this this happened all over the place. And the reason she wanted to do it there was because she, the Forest of Dean on the, on the Welsh border, that was where a lot of our oak came from. And she was worried that the Spanish Armada was going to come round and, and burn, the, burn the forest down and, and destroy our supplies of oak. And they, they did actually have a plan to do that, you know. That was very shrewd of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, talking of legacy in terms, in the context of, of trees and planting trees, did you, are you aware of that? I think it's a Greek proverb, and I, I might butcher the the, uh, the wording of it, but it's you know, wise men plant trees uh, that they know they'll never you know bask in the shade of or something. Something along those lines. I can't remember the exact wording of it, but there's something nice about that, isn't there? That it's, you know, you don't plant a tree selfishly. No. Well, these oaks that I'm planting out now, I'll never get the benefits of them. You know, I'll see them as young trees. Yeah. But it's that, that succession of planting is something that maybe we've lost a little bit, you know. In the 18th century, when there was another drive to replant oaks in, in Britain for the Navy, as they started to replant, then we started to make steel ships, you know. So they weren't needed. And a lot of those trees are still there yet now, you know. But it's that planning ahead. I suppose if you don't need to plan ahead, you don't do. You use, you use the resources you've got. Yeah. And maybe we should do it for different reasons now. Rather, you know, do it for the environment. We've got climate change and, bio, and biodiversity loss. You know, since I was a little boy, I'm in my 50s now. And in that period, since I was a kid... We've lost half our wildlife in this country, you know. Wow. And that is a huge uh, thing to happen in my lifetime, I think, you know. Yeah. So it's as, be- it's as big a problem as the climate change problem that we face, really. Yeah. And they're both linked side by side. So it's about, you know, thinking, well, you know, we've only got so many resources in this world, haven't we? So you've got to, um, you know, think think outside the box, really, and just, just you know, you've got to be good to the environment because it's it's our home isn't it yeah when you when you said about losing the wildlife there's a crazy statistic with the australian bushfires i think it was where it was it was projected something like three billion animals died or something is that right absolutely horrendous i don't know the figure it was it was something that was almost like you have to double take and you have to say hang on a minute what how Mm. many how many died um, 
crazy. And, 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 but that's nature, isn't it, as well? But that is also a symptom of climate change, I guess, isn't it? I suppose it is. I suppose so. I don't know. <laughs> I say I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm convinced that climate, climate change is happening. Yeah. You know, we know that we know that that's happening. So yeah, but it's it's all linked. It's not just about that, is it? It's about our behaviour and the way we're, you know, not treating the the planet right as well, isn't yeah. it? Well, it's all off the back of us, really. Yeah. So we've got a responsibility to react and do something about it, haven't we? I yes. Think. So you've been all over the world. You've been incredibly blessed to to enjoy the travel that you have. And I know we've we've only talked about a very a few places that you've been. Was there anywhere else you've been that you felt was particularly impactful on you and your journey through discovering trees and 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 educating yourself on trees? Is there other places obviously Japan was a big one for you but other places that you feel were particularly sort of nourishing to you to to visit? Yeah, Cal- America was amazing. I mean, it's just doing a road trip through California through six national parks and seeing these incredible you know giants of the forest if you like you know and then going and seeing that you're 12,000 foot up in the mountains looking at these little bristlecone pines I mean that was is so humbling you know and it just makes you feel realize how small you are you know yeah. in the scheme of things two different mountain ranges completely different trees on each one but within, you know, you can see one range from the other, you know, it's really, as it's crow flies, it's pretty close. So I think New Zealand, America, California in particular, and Japan really stand out as highlights. But even going to Europe, everything's a learning curve, you know. And you go to Denmark and northern France and Germany, and the treescape's pretty similar to Britain. So we're in the same kind of, you wouldn't same hemisphere, in the same area. But then as you travel south, the the treescape changes, you know, and you get to the Mediterranean and the old trees, the old ancient trees start to, you start to see olives, you know, these ancient olive trees, which have uh, all around the Mediterranean, which have given the people a living for thousands of years. And that's, there's that beneficial symbiotic relationship again, you know, so the trees have provided olives to feed the people. And in return, the people keep the trees um, going, you know, yeah. So you can, uh, in Sardinia, I mean, put, you go and you see the oaks there, which are different to ours, they're cork oaks. So the bark is cork. That's where cork comes from, is the bark of a cork oak tree. And, I mean, you strip the bark from a cork oak tree and then they make corks from it. And if you do that to any other tree, they'll die because if you, if you ring bark a tree, it can't, it can't feed itself. So, right. But for cork oaks, they can survive. So every eight, eight to ten years, they strip the bark only up to the branches. So you see like this bald tree with bark all on the branches. Yeah. And that's been, that's been a relationship between people and trees since Roman times. The Roman army marched on cork, you know, on their sandals. So right. they've been harvesting that cork for all that time. But very recently, really, in the scheme of things, we now have screwed up bottles. I mean, I go into the co-op and I can't find a bottle with a cork in it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And that's impacted on the environment because because they're not needed anymore. So if it doesn't give a living to the people, they can't support that environment. And it's really had a big impact on the those cork oak forests, which, you know, give the biodiversity to all sorts of animals that live in them, you know. Yeah. So all, that's why you should always buy champagne or 
or prosecco because it's got a cork in it. Because you know, Rioja. Right. Because if they if they don't need those trees any longer, they're more inclined to cut them down and build something where they can work. Yeah. Right. And it's in, it's interesting that for thousands of years it's provided living, but very recently, I mean, in our time, it's it's that changeover's happened, you know, and had a huge impact on that. Talking yeah. of our time, what yeah, what do you expect to see? uh happen in our time as that is a very broad question I, I appreciate but um is there somewhere we're heading we should reverse that will happen in our you know our lifetime if we're not proactive about it i mean i, I don't know andy that's a really difficult question <laughs> to answer but i don't i look at i view it in a sort of a 50 a sort of brexit way if you like i think it's like a 50 50 mentality on nature and the environment maybe I don't know if that's a if that's a good balance, an accurate balance. But I think you know half the people are, are are into it and want to support it, and maybe the other half aren't really that interested. So you can't write those people off. You've got to try and explain the benefits and and maybe a bit of education, uh, you know, without trying to sound patronising. Yeah, without trying to sound patronising, really, you know. So, I mean, I can only I can really only. Uh, I feel I know a lot of people who've um, had big impacts on tree planting. There's a, you know, plant a million trees. There's a group called the Tree Sisters and uh, they wanted to plant a million trees. That was their aim to combat climate change. So and obviously they were in the UK, I think, in America and they looked at trying to plant and they decided, well, it doesn't matter where we do it because um, you're still providing the same amount of oxygen to the world wherever you plant these trees you know and 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 co2 absorption so they ended up doing it in, in india right. because it was cheaper and easier for them to do that and they have planted a million trees out there you know person and i think that's brilliant that they've done that but that wouldn't be my approach i look at the local aspect which is a small maybe a small minded approach but i just think i can have more impact to my local environment where i live really yeah. that i know and because of and especially being in Britain, that 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 figure about losing all our wildlife, maybe um, in Britain, that's where I'd really like my my impact to be. I think you can I don't know, you can spread yourself very thinly. So I try to be I try to be a little bit more direct in what I do. Yeah, because you can only do so much as a one person. Can't yeah, be. you can. OK, good place to wrap this up, I think. Are you working okay. on any new books at the moment? I am actually yes. Um, I can't say too much about it because I'm sworn to secrecy. But it's another tree book. I can tell you that, <laughs> and it's it's working with other people this time. Nice. So uh, there'll be five of us involved, and I'm really excited about it. As soon as the you know, as soon as I can, I'll 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 let on about that. Big thank you to this week's guest, Julian Height. If you want to read his books and generally find out what he's up to, we will leave all relevant links to those in the show notes descriptions. Please make sure you like, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. If you've got a friend that really loves trees, you've got any tree-hugging friends, then make sure you send them this podcast and see if they enjoy it. Uh, you can follow us on social media. The handle is at the giant pod. That is the same for Twitter as it is Instagram, and you can get me on Instagram at Andy underscore S1S. This podcast was produced by Harry the Maple Williams. That was lame. Uh, We will see you next week on The Giant Pod. Thanks very much.